HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal, helping you enjoy your fruits and vegetables at peak freshness and reduce food waste. Learn more at appeal.com. Good evening and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food systems and policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'm joined by author Benjamin Lohr to talk about his new book, The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket, which delves into what it takes to get food onto grocery store shelves and who suffers the consequences of our increasing demand for cheap food and efficiency. Ben interviews workers at every level of the grocery industry, from the founder of Trader Joe's himself to a truck driver responsible for transporting the products to entrepreneurs trying to get their items into stores to the traffic migrants of Myanmar and Thailand at the bottom of the commodity chain. So without further ado, Ben, I want to welcome you to the show and start right away by asking how you came to write a book about groceries. It's quite a departure from your last book, which was about the Bikram yoga community and the patterns of abuse and sexual misconduct by Guru Bikram Chowdhury. (laughs) That is a good question with actually a good answer. They led directly from one to the other. So yeah, my first book was very similar in approach in that it was very like hands-on, first-person experience, kind of went deep into the world of Bikram yoga, did Mm -hmm. a lot of yoga during the writing (laughs) of that book, um, and wanted to kind of understand this kind of megalomaniac, uh, narcissist, predatory guru's appeal to the people Mm -hmm. in his community. It was all pre-Trump, so I'd never seen anyone like that before. And then uh, I found him now a we've really got a couple fascinating of them. character. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now they're on the national scene before it was yep. my little niche. Um, <laughs> but so during one of the teacher trainings for that book that I attended, um, and this, all these kind of really thoughtful, uh, intelligent human beings who were like obsessed with this yoga, I was following them, and they were doing the yoga twice a day, uh, every day for nine weeks. There was a, they were living on the grounds of this hotel and they would go off to get groceries because they were, you know, responsible for their own food. And I watched this group of adults descend on a Trader Joe's with maniacal glee, like kids at an amusement park level excitement. And 
it just there's something just clicked about this kind of cult of food and, and grocery stores being this avenue for personal expression and, and grocery shopping that seemed to dovetail really closely with the cult uh, of yoga that I was kind of exploring. And it seemed like a very natural segue in my weird eyes. Uh, and so I wanted to learn as much about how Trader Joe's worked and and how this kind of this, this food changed from when I was growing up. It was just you'd go out shopping for food. And now it's this vehicle for meaning, um, whether mm. it's our health, our ecological altruism, or it's, um, you know, connection to kindred, kin and ancestry. Uh, I just wanted to understand. My next question was definitely like, why Trader Joe's of all of the of the grocery stores? I mean, you kind of detail the history of like the gross the grocery store and how we got to where we are now with the supermarket model. Um, but before we before you answer that, can you just give us a few kind of like industry statistics on just how big the grocery industry is today in the in the U.S. Yes. I mean, grocery is massive. It's $701 billion per year industry uh, as of 218. There's 38,000 grocery stores across the land. You as an adult are going to spend 2% of your life walking inside of one. And, uh, and I think you feel that power when you walk in. And that was very central to the appeal. The idea that you know, walking into a grocery store is almost a hallucinogenic experience in that at one hand, it's very soothing, and I find myself very comforted by the grocery aisles and strolling. And at the same time, there's an immense power of that $700 billion industry that kind of radiates off those shelves. And that balance of like soothing comfort and maybe menace and size was uh, something that really attracted me to the book. And yet for, I mean, for as much... Um money as Americans spend at supermarket style grocery stores, we really don't spend very much of our overall budget on food, right? And it's decreased drastically. That's right. Um, We spend the least amount of our money of anyone uh, in the world as Americans, which is pretty startling to understand. Uh, That is adjusted to income, but it's also uh, compared to our, you know, just our recent ancestors. It's a big new development. Around the turn of the century, uh, our grandparents uh, spent about 40% of their budget on food, and Mm -hmm. that decreased to about 30% by the 1950s, and now we're under 10%. So it's, on one hand, something that may be out of sight, out of mind, but on the other hand, think of like the way that this has enabled uh, the rise of the middle class, and if there was some area of your budget right now that you're spending 40% of your money on that suddenly evaporated down to sub 10%. Um, and, and that was really part of the promise of the supermarket and the efficiency of our supply chains and agricultural revolution behind it. Yeah. I mean, it seems like pretty safe to say that the grocery store is, is like a microcosm of our food system and everything. Yeah. And maybe even like everything that's in like American life. <laughs> I mean, right. I don't ever say those words out loud in the book, but I certainly thought them all the time. And I do hope that that's an undercurrent that runs through the book. Yeah. I mean, I mean, certainly it's, I mean, with groceries, it's like the pressure to like bigger, cheaper, faster, more convenient. 
Um, and it's just impossible, right? I mean, at a certain point, um, something's got to give. And ultimately, I think that always, you know, the people at the the bottom of the chain, which you write about, um, often bear bear the brunt of that, like the the labor. Um, and we can talk about that in a little bit. But first, let's talk about Trader Joe's, which I was so excited to learn more about because, I, you know, I have to say this is this is a place where it has always baffled me. Like I've been in food for a long time, and you know, some of the most passionate, like food activists, even are obsessed with Trader Joe's and you know, foodies and whatnot, and people with all kinds of, you know, disposable income. People love this store. I can't wrap my head around it. And I think <laughs> I, I can't. I and mean, I feel like you had similar feelings at first um, before yeah. kind of learning more about it. Totally. I was a uh, Trader Joe's ambivalent, which is to say I shopped there. I recognized some of its appeal. I was completely baffled, as you say, by the kind of um, – the hold that it had on people. And like my Trader Joe's in Brooklyn will have a line that wraps around the entire store. All of them. And that is worth, yeah. Yeah. And to me growing, you know, used to a a supermarket where like a six person line was considered a big hassle and you're kind of tapping your toe. Like I just didn't get it. Um, What could possibly be worth a 45 minute wait or what what feels like a 45 minute wait when you get on it, it actually moves quicker. Um, so I shared all that ambivalence and actually it was one of the big surprises of the book that I got to spend some time with the founder, Joe Kalum. Um, and I walked in with the attitude of like, there's something really too good to be true about all of this. And there are things to be, that are too good to be true. I think in the same way that, uh, Trader Joe's mirrors a lot of the problems in the grocery industry. But mm-hmm. a lot of the exceptionalism in Trader Joe's comes from the fact that he approached the supermarket differently, smarter, better, more um, as a secular humanist and less as a businessman. And that was it was really wonderful to learn. I was like, ah, business is a creative endeavor. Uh, what a refreshing yeah. concept. Right. Throw a little tiki in there. <laughs> Changes <laughs> yeah, exactly. the game. But it is very interesting what he did, you know, with the with the supply chain. You talk about how he kind of like sidestepped it and would create um new supply chains and new like avenues of demand and and essentially just kind of like new products, right? Like they couldn't compete on peanut butter you wrote, but so they basically created almond butter as like a thing that people now want that is like now ubiquitous. That's right. That's exactly right. And and to really fully understand this, you got to take like three big steps back and look at what the supermarket is and where it came from, um, which is to say, you know, the supermarket as an innovation, and it sounds silly to, to use the word innovation around these things, but but actually it was yeah, it quite a, a, a mental shift. Um, so there was a store called the – or the concept called the general store, which was where most Americans got their food circa 1850. And it sold everything from boots to like laudanum and opium and little drug vial, patent medicine drug vials uh, and some and food uh, as well. And it was all located behind the counter – it was all served to you by a clerk, and it was all sold in kind of anonymous bulk. And there were two big shifts, one in terms of packaging uh, that kind of created the modern grocery store. And, and so as packaging became cheaper uh, and the technologies around tinning, canning, boxing evolved, um, that created 
individualized products, which of course needed brands and names. And that created consumers who wanted to sift through them and choose them and thus put meaning onto them. And then the other really big shift that this packaging allowed was that it some the gentleman by the name of Michael Cullen, uh, who started the first real supermarket, which was a King Cullen in 1930, realized that if he just blew out the offerings of the store and made it bigger, so it's like very American, you can't get much more American than this, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. he could create kind of a buying frenzy. He could offer cheaper products than his competitors and really play a volume game where he kept certain products at extremely low margin and then tinkered with the margin of, of kind of products on the edges. He could locate these stores off the main drag uh, at cheaper real estate, and he would save on warehousing, all of which would go to low pr- lower prices. Um, but the key around this was like bigger, <laughs> bigger, bigger, bigger. Um, and yeah. you hear all the early trade magazines just going on and on about the importance of size and the importance of abundance. And what Trader Joe's does, to link this all back to your question, <clears throat> is Joe realized he just couldn't compete on size alone. Um, That that was something that was always going to go to one or two companies who got the biggest balance sheets and everyone else would kind of been crushed. And you see that. He was very prophetic. He was, of course, making these observations in the mid-1960s, but now in our landscape with Walmart and Amazon and a a tremendous shrinkage in the number of of supermarket chains. you know, he was absolutely right about this. And his answer to that was, I'm not going to try to grow bigger. I'm just going to try to develop laterally. I'm going to try to develop products that can't be scaled up at quite the same size or don't seem like they can be scaled up in quite the same way. Uh, And that appeal to a very particular demographic that might even be disgusted by the idea of products that can only be sold in mass bulk like Coca-Cola and Bounty. So that was, he just kind of identified like a particular customer like your like the yogis <laughs> and started yeah. creating products to kind of cater to them in a way yeah and 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 also i think there was a a flip side to that coin which is that not only did he cater to a specific com- customer but he allowed his buyers to cater to that customer, which is to say that if you are getting bigger and bigger and and the modern 200,000 square Sam's Clubs, Costco's of the world have hundreds, uh, like literally 100,000 discrete items in them. And if you're a buyer for that store, there's no way that you can understand the intricacies of the supply chain of 100,000 different items. It's not within the realm of human comprehension. These are all extremely detailed, complicated supply chains. And so he cut his offerings way back. He decided he would pay his buyers more than the industry average. He had the highest paid buyers in the industry. And by doing those two kind of things, he allowed that he kind of empowered them to learn the supply chain. And then like you gave the example with peanut butter, okay, we can't win on peanut butter. The, the Walmart remarks of his day were always going to be able to compete on volume with peanut butter. But if we go into almonds, which hadn't been ground for nut butters, at least at scale at that time, we can create a product that we can be the best at and sell at the cheapest price. And of course, that's going to drive our kind of foodie consumers crazy. And they're going to love us for it. I mean, he was, he was brilliant. I mean, by all means, I mean, you were, I, it seems like you were so impressed and just like, you know, reading about his accomplishments and how innovative and 
the foresight he had really is um, awesome, <laughs> you know, in, in that sense. Um, and it gave me a whole new respect for the store. Um, and then I learned that they sold to Aldi, which is ironic given I, I like, I think the thing, how you kind of detailed, like how he wanted to, how and why the store started and what made it, you know, successful to compete against like the big box companies in a way, which he ultimately sold to. Yeah. So Aldi's actually very interesting because that's a German chain and it was developed yeah. after World War II. And in, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right that Aldi's lacks all the whimsy, all the tiki, all the secular humanism of Trader Joe's. But what it does is it uh, it does sidestep the American supersize the store for low price volume game. Aldi's was formed very much by um, weird, like they wanted to have a limited stock, and they were going to instead of innovated by getting bigger, they were going to just push their manufacturers for lower and lower prices on very generic goods. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, that merger made a lot of sense to Joe. Um, they had kind of a common found uh, philosophy around what uh, you know size of store and, and offerings of products. Although I think he was also um, pretty put off by some of what he would call the Germans being German and their kind <laughs> of technocratic bent rather than their their whimsy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, okay. So that, I mean, this was incredible to have access. It seems like to somebody like Joe, um, can I, is he still living? Is he still alive? No, he, sadly, he passed away in February of this year, actually. Oh, that's um, so sad. And it's, it is too bad because he was, uh, as I think I made clear uh, in the book, and this is not just me like meeting this guy and being blown away by, Oh, he's, he's so smart. Like, Literally, I'd interview his early employees, and they would just go on and on about how they wanted to get to work to listen to what this guy had to say. He was so smart, and he could read kind of forecasts in the world. Um, so uh, it, it was very much an impression formed by talking to a lot of people, but I would have really loved to hear what he thought of the current COVID moment, because he was very much someone who reacted by observing the world and didn't kind of have like a preconceived agenda of how things were going to turn. He mm -hmm. was very much a listener. And in fact, the Trader Joe's concept came from him listening to these two, you know, there's really three trends behind it, but one was uh, the GI bill um, going and hitting a third wave of soldiers returning from Korea. Uh, I mean, sorry, returning from Vietnam after Korea mm -hmm. and World War II. And he realized that that was going to mean that a whole new generation of people who didn't usually go to college were going to get to go to college. And that was going to change their buying habits. And similarly, the 747 had just come online. And he realized that that was going to democratize travel, travel being a form of education like the GI Bill. It was going to change consumer habits. So, mm -hmm. you know, thinking of somebody who could see the announcement for the 747 and, yeah. and understand that that was going to reduce the price of travel to Europe and then say, you know what, that's going to mean that nobody likes Safeway anymore uh, yeah. and be right 20 years ahead of the time. You know, that just gives us a sense of how he was looking at the world. Yeah. I mean, there is nothing short of 
like incredibly, you know, impressive. He also, you you know, you also talk about what just the fundamentally, like he seems like a really good person and like being a good person just made sense to him. And I, as, especially as a woman and reading about like his kind of philosophy for, um, you know, how he treated employees and I I found very refreshing and gave me a whole new appreciation. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I love it. There was one moment where I was, uh, you know, he had the highest paid kind of front office employees in the industry. And, and part of that was happened when he, when 7-Eleven rolled into town and I was like, you know, kind of pushing him like, Joe, why, what, like he, he, he had these complicated reasons why he wanted to pay people more that didn't quite make sense. And I was just like, well, why did you stick with this policy of, of paying your employees more than everyone else? And he was just, he said something like, you know, life's too short. I didn't want to work around like anyone but the best. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, you could just get this sense of this guy who just really respected human beings and understood that if you paid people bad wages, you weren't going to get the best people. And he didn't want to uh, suffer fools. Um, I, you know, he, he was just like kind of yeah. a, a, a well, really lovely guy. <clears throat> um, and then the next chapter, you go into trucking. So fascinating. I learned so much. Let's again, like we did with grocery, can you tell us a few, uh, you know, fun industry stats from trucking? Because I mean, you, you do do say you're like everything. And I mean, everything gets to us on a truck. And like, I don't know why I didn't realize that before, but I, I, you're, you're like, it also, you're like truckers love to say it. And then also it's true. It has the added benefit of being true. So how how big of an industry is it? It's huge. So it's the majority in a majority of states. It's the number one employer, first of all, just like right off the bat. Um, It works out. We're we're shipping gobs of freight works out to something like 350 pounds per person. That's like man, woman, child every single day is getting shipped. So there's 350 pounds moving around every day on your behalf as a citizen in the United States of America, um, which gives you a sense, like you don't probably think that you're using 350 pounds of anything a day, um, but that's what's, that's what's being moved around on trucks on your behalf. Um, it, it, it was a mind-opening chapter for me to work on too because I didn't, trucking is extremely dangerous, um, the most deaths per any profession occur to truck drivers. It's when you think of dangerous jobs on, on these dangerous jobs lists, it's right up there with timber and deep sea fishing and, and law enforcement as, a, as, as places where people are getting killed. And the vigilance required of a trucker on the highway is, is pretty startling to watch because of course you have this image of like the blue collar trucker implanted in your head from the seventies kind of gruff but lovable but when you're operating in something that's hauling around 85,000 pounds and th- where a single mistake will equal a death whether it's in the passenger car next to you or yourself as the truck driver you have to be extremely clued in at all times so it's not at all analogous to just going on lots of road trips um which i think in my head uh, prior to writing this and spending time with truckers I, I I kind of allowed myself to fantasize. It seems like the fantasies were abruptly like you were thrown into reality really quickly in your experience learning about the trucking industry. Like you got a firsthand glimpse of uh, what it was like, and it seems it seems pretty rough, man. <laughs> just, like yeah, 
Yeah. So trucking is kind of emblematic of the dark miracle and it, you know, it's the second chapter and we kind of begin to understand the costs associated with the abundance and the convenience and the choice that the grocery store offers. Um, it, it is trapped in a race to the bottom uh, mm-hmm. where labor is the cost that gets cut more than anything. Um, truckers are working twice as efficiently as they were in the 1970s and getting paid 40% as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I ro- rode around with a trucker who was grossing for her company $200,000 a year and was taking home 17000 of that. She was living in her cab um, with a mailing address that was a storage unit, so ostensibly homeless. Mm-hmm. And she was ex- working extremely hard. This was, she was absolutely not someone who was slacking off on the job. Um, and she was caught in a form of uh, debt peonage, essentially. Um, you know, other truckers I talked to talked about calling their, their, their job like sharecropping on wheels mm-hmm. because a lot of the costs came from the fact that they went in debt to get their commercial truck driving license and they went further in debt to become leaseholders uh, or in the nomenclature of the industry, owner-operators. Mm-hmm. Um doesn't that sound so much better? That sounds so much more empowering. <laughs> it sounds so much more empowering, and they're pushed into it um, without actually understanding the full facts around it. And yeah, um, then the debt that they take out uh, prevents them from going freely through the market and getting top bids. They're beholden to a certain fleet that floated them that money in the first place. And yeah. uh, the result is cheap freight. You know, grocery prices have absolutely fallen because of that. Um, the consumer benefits, but the 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 life of the laborer is extremely dismal, and they're treated like disposable parts for the for the large part. Right. Yeah. You write. You write that it's structurally vampiric, <clears throat> which I. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I felt like it was incredibly well described after after learning and i do think this is the one aspect of our food you know of our of our food system of like our labor that i mean i didn't know very much about at all and i've been working food for a while so how why do you think this is so overlooked and if it is such a big business um and you know like what yeah why why is this uh, why are we basically allowing as a society this to happen um, and yeah. also, is this just with food? I mean, are other like go, is this the same in other industries? I mean, that may be hard to answer because you obviously focus on groceries. Well, but for I'm trucking, <clears throat> yeah, for for trucking, yeah. it's absolutely not tied to groceries at all. It's it's the trucking, it's freight in general. Yeah. Um, as to the the first question of why we allow it to happen, it's a it's a, it's a tough one. Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, I think there are the we only have forty five minutes. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's the easy glib answers, which I think have a lot of truth to them, which is that it's out of sight, out of mind. We live in a world where with rising in wealth inequity, mm-hmm. and um, it's very easy not to pay attention to these workers um, because, first of all, they live in a parallel uh, universe. You know, truckers are out driving from midnight to 4 a.m., dropping their loads off. That's not when we're on the highway. They're mm-hmm living on the road, um, eating at all these rest stops. They're not people that if you're not a trucker, you come into contact with frequently. And Mm -hmm. I think 
because it is a very much a um, blue collar entry level job, uh, you know, and, and trucking recruiters, there's definitely stories of them recruiting from homeless shelters and soup kitchens. Um, I, I talked to some activists who, who would say something like, you know, people just expect that, that it's attracting a lot of crazies and they'll just, you know, if they're abused, they'll just scuttle back to where they came from. And so I think that often they're not necessarily sympathetic victims. And so people don't pay attention to them for that reason. Of course, I think that's all crazy, mm-hmm. but I think that that goes into some of the, the, the rationale why, um, why this has gone on. I will also say trucking is gargantuan. There are good actors out there. There, there are very much good trucking fleets. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the problem of sorting out good actors from bad actors is a real um, dilemma. So, um, okay. So then, so from, from the kind of the trucking at like chapter on the book, you move into another side of the industry, what is, which is what is it like to be a producer? Um, is there anything, you know, that you found like particularly surprising when learning kind of what it takes to get a product into a, like onto a retailer shelf? <laughs> yeah, everything. I mean, I think I walked around with this notion that, you know, I make a good guacamole if I wanted to spend a few months thinking through how to jar it. I mm-hmm. could uh, become a food entrepreneur myself and like my guacamole would stand up to old El Paso because it tastes <laughs> <Any>. better. Uh, <laughs> but that's just not the case. I think, you know, I, I followed around a woman named Julie Boucher who's was selling a, her product was called a slossa combination coleslaw salsa. And the amount of energy and dedication that she had to put in to getting the product on shelf was staggering and informative in that I thought her big competition as a a condiment manufacturer would come from other condiments, the relishes, ketchups, coleslaws. Uh, It turns out that one of her biggest threats was the store itself uh, in that supermarkets now operate much more like a landlord leasing space and coming mm-hmm. after the producer's bottom line rather than relying on their own sales margin, which yeah. is to say grocery stores sell inches on shelf. Sorry if I'm beating around the bush. They have no, things no. called slotting fees where they will just sell actual inches to producers for space. And I'm not talking about end caps, which I think we all like those big displays at the end with like piles of tomatoes, uh, canned tomatoes or, or whatnot. I think we all know are, you know, uh, pay for play spaces. I'm talking about inches on shelves anywhere. And, uh, or, yeah. or they'll ask for free cases of product that they then sell at like a hundred percent markup, which then, um, of course, juices the bottom line or promotional fees to be advertised in some newsletter that nobody really reads, but you know, acts as something of a fee for placement in the store. Um, and what that does is it changes the nature of the grocery hustle to some degree so that a small entrepreneur like Julie, who's not tapped into venture capital, it has a much harder time competing against people who have connections to deeper pockets and can thus pretty much instantly get placed on stores across America. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one, one uh, number that comes to mind right now is 
like the cost of getting a single a SKU, which is what the name for like an individual product in a grocery store, a single SKU uh, in the frozen department costs about a million dollars to roll out nas- nationwide. Um, so yeah. that gives you a sense of the amount of money uh, that would prevent someone like Julie Boucher with her, um, you know, home kitchen tested product getting uh, and hitting a successful stride. It's true everywhere, and it's amazing. And it, and and to some extent, it's like uh, it is just the way things are done. And biz- supermarkets have quietly reinvented their business mar- model from just yeah. a margin game uh, yeah. into something where a lot of responsible suppliers just build in this like fifteen to eighteen percent of trade spend, and that's the way the game is played. Um, it, you know, I think it really hurts when you're this, the new entrepreneur. And you don't know about this. And there are certainly places and chains where they, they use it in a very extractive manner that isn't about growing your brand or isn't about advertising to their customers. It's mm-hmm. just about juicing their bottom line. Yeah. And certainly there are probably better players than others, maybe, but it seems pretty uniform in terms of, um, yeah. you know, like a cross. Like, it, yeah. I mean, this is like kind of how business is done, which was that you know you just don't know unless you're the person trying to get onto the shelves and compete against P&G it's really hard um, and it, what it gives about- you a sense also oh sorry i was just going to say there's something about this conversation that also like illuminates some of like the backwards and old school ways that supermarkets operate which are at very much at odds from the like efficiency and logistics uh, and and ag like scientific ag that surrounds them but Mm -hmm. you know i I, one of my favorite quotes was i i think made it into the book in an end note but i don't think it's in the book proper is i talked to this kind of industry consultant guy named kevin coop and he would Mm say uh nobody in grocery understands what anything costs they don't you know nobody understands what the margins are the they these are that because that's not how the game is played anymore. They have so many. They've tacked on so many weird fees and you know slotting arrangements. Buy one get one freeze, and they're always making their margin. But it's just not in any linear kind of straightforward fashion. It's all through these weird underhanded deals that happen one year and then the next year they go away because they're giving you a break, and then they come back double force two years down the line. Uh, and I I don't know. It, it, it was really eye opening. What is like in your, you know, kind of in your opinion, like how does e-commerce throw a wrench in that? I mean, when you, you, you can't pay, you can certainly pay for like, you know, placement on a page. So is that kind of what, what is, what is happening now? Or I'm wondering yeah, how you see I've, that like just dis- disruption. I, I, do I don't have like a grand theory of e-commerce. I should be developing one just as I do these interviews. Um, but for your next book. I, yeah, I do. I think you're absolutely right. Like where I don't, I didn't know if this is where you were going with like payments for the page. They're yeah. going to get their cut somewhere. Somewhere. They're just going to now reinvent <laughs> where that cut is coming from. So if it comes from uh, payments on the page or if it comes from, you know, like uh, some type of internal advertising network or some newsletter that they blast out in a featured product thing, it's going to, they're going to figure out a way to charge for essentially the same margin. Uh, but it'll be a new 
way of taking that bite out of the apple, that little nibble. You're like, don't worry about them. <laughs> They'll yeah, be fine. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I'm not counting on the internet to usher in an era of like r- rapid reform. Of yeah. Music. yeah, yeah. And I think there was a moment where like those like GeoCities sites where we all thought the internet was going to be that savior. And then we realized, nope, all the bad habits that we have as humans can basically be replicated online and then supercharged with AI. Yeah. And it'll oh, be worse just- than ever. Worst, yeah. I'm like, no, no, this has actually just made us worse. So great. Okay. I mean, if you've ever like gone gone down the Twitter rabbit hole at 1 a.m. as I am currently want to do, oh. thanks to our current political climate, <laughs> I'm like, too this familiar. Bad. This yeah. is bad. I've heard doom, doom scrolling is like the word of the year, and uh, it really I is. Wish that was less true for my life than it is. Yep. Yeah. My favorite tweet is like, I really wish this would be over so I can go back to reading a book at night and not doom scrolling through Twitter. But, um, well, let me tell you, this book is available as an audiobook. I narrate yes. it. So oh. if you're like, if you're like me and you can no longer focus on the written word, let, let me read to you uh, yeah. about the craziness of this world. Yes. <laughs> that's my, yes. that's my plug for the doom scrollers out there. Okay, we are going to um, take a quick break right now and hear a word from our sponsors, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at HRN, we care about reducing waste across our food system from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away, it also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system, from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal, food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm interviewing author Ben Lohr about his new book, The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket. You mentioned Kevin before. And one of the chapters you write is, you know, what, what, what did Kevin make me see or what Kevin made me see? Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that um, section yes. of the book? Although that full disclosure, totally different Kevins. One was Kevin Coop, who uh-huh. is kind of a, a retail, um, you know, thought leader, whatever, however you want to say it. And one is Kevin Kelly, who is who you're oh. referring to. And Kevin okay. Kelly is a retail architect, which is also kind of a weird descriptor for someone. And he kind of promised this merger of psychology and architecture. He's an architect by training, but was building out store interiors in a way to do what he would call building a physical bliss points, which were these moments to where like consumers would want and feel excited and energized by the store and, and thus spend more. Um, That's like, and- that it has to be the most consultant phrase I've ever heard in my entire life. Absolutely. And I walked into the Kevin so cynical. And when one of the, I think there is a huge cynical side to this. I think, thank 
hopefully Kevin, and I think the reason I focused on him um, was I wanted to put uh, a twist uh, on this. But for him, physical bliss points is just that. It's consultant speak. And Mm -hmm. the way that you make people feel connected to their products the way that you make people buy is by actually tapping into deeply meaningful parts of ourselves. Uh, And it was, this is all gets into like very kind of touchy territory for me who grew up pretty non-materialistic still am, you know, recycle, reuse, uh, (laughs) waste, not want, not. These are like mottos that I try to live by in reality. And so talking Mm -hmm. about self-expression through material culture gets me uncomfortable. But Kevin really helped me see, one, how these are pervasive forces, whether you like to admit it or not. And they manifest in all sorts of ways, either through, you know, cliched examples of like people with Gucci branded bags, projecting brand image, or, you know, equally cliched uh, buying like protein shakes to project uh, like a health uh, health attributes to the world, but also through negative habits. Like when, you, you know, someone who's wealthy and, and choosing to manifest uh, frugality by buying like a, some $1.99 tube socks at, um, uh, at a discount store, uh, whether you're a, vi- you're a vinyl record head and you're collecting your vinyl record or you're a writer like me and you have lots of books on your shelf, like material objects are one of the, ways we express ourselves. Um, we have a limited range of tools for letting people know what a unique snowflake we are inside. <laughs> and um, it was really interesting to see how that got applied to the modern grocery store because it was on one hand much less cynical than the, the version of the retail architect I expected, which was someone who would explain that you put the milk in the back so you had to like walk through the store and get kind of lost and forget why you came there and buy things that weren't on your list to somebody who is saying, no, no, we need to engage the consumer in a narrative that is something that, that pre-existed this store. And the store is just tapping into these meaningful things for them and enabling them. Um, and, and to the extent, you know, Kevin would say most of, of food retailers have really fallen away because they've fallen trapped to wanting to imitate Walmart and Amazon, Walmart, he would call just a, a lumber yard of food. And there's room for exactly one of those in the world. You can't, um, if you're a small retailer, you're not going to compete on their terms. So you have, to, you have to do things that are more meaningful. And that includes a lot of really good forms of meaning, not just crass forms of meaning. And how does that, like, how, how does that kind of get manifested? Is that in the claims that we, you know, the things that we say yeah. about the product, that, you know, like the, well, that's the, an interesting, I mean, and, and so, yeah, in the book, when you say like, what did Kevin make me see? I think yeah. one of the things he made me see was just how much the ethical certification regime and the audit structure that maintains the claims like rainforest friendly, mm-hmm. um, fair trade, all the little paleo, all the little like symbols that appear on your food, letting you know that it's good. How good it is. Yeah. How good it is. And it's all good in like a wild range of semi-contradictory ways because we're very contradictory people. Um, How much that was not about actually enacting those ideals, 
but expressing those ideals. And that, of course, is very troubling as we bleed into some of the later sections of the book, which we might not have total time to get into, but where things get really dark and there is extreme labor abuse at the bottom of the commodity chain, certainly in shrimp where I explore in the book, but in a lot, uh, the bottom of a lot of commodity chains because of the volume of food it takes to run uh, a grocery store and to run a country uh, mm-hmm. and to run a world with this many billion people. Uh means that there's a lot of um, dark places in those commodity chains. And the system for ensuring integrity in them just is far more geared to pleasing the consumer and allowing the consumer to enact, uh, or sorry, express their ideals rather than to enact reforms of those ideals. And and for someone who had kind of grown up on my Michael Paul and Eric Schlosser, these guys are were were and are um, heroes of mine and tried to enact what they had written about in the grocery store, you run into a brick wall, which is that this system, uh, for all its good intentions, is often not allowing you to do that. The whole kind of, I guess I ran into what I would call like the, the limits of like vote with your dollar mm. type spending, which of course makes sense. Like why would we think that spending extra money uh, will make the world a better place. Like, what a self-serving ideal! I will just get myself some cool treat, and like, I'll also alleviate poverty. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You have to go out and alleviate poverty, make some treaties with like enforcement teeth, support unions, uh, do all the like nitty-gritty things that are completely uh, orthogonal to food and eating and diet. Uh, get those right, and, and you'll have a chance at enacting good ideals. But probably putting the right food in your belly, not going to make the world a better place necessarily. Uh, orthogonal, very good word. First time that's ever come <laughs> up in an interview with me. So congratulations on that. I might argue that like in voting with your – the idea behind voting with your fork is, of course, hopefully – you're spending more money. And that is actually a question that I have. This is like a perfect segue to it, to it, but like you're spending more money. And so you assume, or you hope that it's because people are people like along the, along the supplier value chain are like making you're better compensated. Let's say farmer makes more money for their, for their product. And it's, produced by some, you know, somebody in a factory, a co-packer where they like pay livable wages and blah, 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 whatever. But I think that it seems like the way that it is structured right now is that, and not like, I would say regulated, but it's not regulated. It seems like, um, at least Mm -hmm. by the government is, is like, it makes us feel better. (laughs) Like right now, all those are doing are like pretty much to make us feel better. So that's not effective. it's not, it's just, one, it's too big a system to make blanket statements, unfortunately. There's no, no probably simple takeaway here in, yeah. in the sense that there are certainly programs that work where you can spend a little bit more as a consumer and it gets earmarked for producers. Uh, that really helps in a vertically integrated place where there's clear lines of supply. What you find in some of the more uh, the bigger and more complicated uh, commodity chains is that there aren't clear lines of supply, um, mm-hmm. that the volume of goods being produced have to be sourced, especially if you don't want to support big business. And this is like one of those places where it's like they're like 
foodies can kind of be at odds because if, if you have a vertically integrated giant big business making the food it's actually easier to create those lines of supplies than if you have uh an exporter buying from an import or an importer buying from an exporter or buying from a producer who sources sure. from ten thousand different fishing boats right yeah. all of a sudden your chances of getting uh, a clear line of supply become really tough and you trust rushes into the system in it rather than hr rushing into the system not that hr is the best thing ever um but you can see the problems um mm-hmm. so which is to say in this in commodity chains where there are uh lots of small holders on one end or even big producers who kind of have rustled together small holders um so they're kind of beholden to a single producer um, you know, people call that like chickenization based on the, the American chicken industry, uh, like Purdue. Even in those cases, getting the money from the register to the producer, it's, it's just, it's tough. Like I talked to NGOs during this book that were, would openly say, we are learning how to uh, reform a broken supply chain. It, there's, you know, it, it very primal um, drives as to why these supply chains are broken. There are people who are willing to work for very little money because of global poverty, and they mm-hmm. are desperate for work. And uh, as long as that inequity exists, uh, and there are people who are willing agents uh, that put themselves at risk for being completely exploited in ways of course they don't want to be uh and don't intend to uh you know putting that responsibility on a grocery store to to refine those supply chains doesn't make that much sense yeah and you know what so one of the things i have um that i wanted to ask you about is you know you mean in this book you lay bare the entire grocery industry right and and it's this incredible deep dive and yet I don't get a sense that you're necessarily pushing like an advocacy agenda in one way or another. I think you're just like, this is what it is. Um, what is your, like, what do you want the reader to take away from this? Like, is your intention to get them to think a little bit more about it or to take action on certain things? What are your hopes for people who are reading this Yeah, book? that's that's a good question. I will say it's not in the book. Uh, I wanted to try to be as even-handed and um, low inference as possible and just mm-hmm. re- give my impressions of these different parts. And, and it was really important. I didn't want to be pushing a preachy agenda um, because I thought that would turn people off. And I think that the conclusions are ones that they will be able to draw themselves. Um, you know, if I had to spell them out, though, I think there's some that have come up in the course of this conversation that get very little shrift in the book, which is, you know, things like unions and strengthening labor, um, giving workers a voice to, you know, um, network, complain in a meaningful fashion about their conditions and have those uh, heard and acted on you know, uh, global poverty programs uh, trade treaties that have enforcement teeth and that act on those so that we are not just 
uh, displacing problems from one zone to the next and just uncovering new areas of the world where people are willing to work for low wages. And then when we kind of put a floor of quality standards in a place, um, the problems just shift elsewhere, which unfortunately is probably uh, the unfolding reality in Thailand where I spent a lot of time for the book where you have producers who are heavily criticized for the for the you know human bondage slavery that I report on in the book uh, watching as they reform their supply chain and the industry goes elsewhere for lower prices um, and I think that those the, you know those are some solutions that come to mind I think there's work that exists in you know, we talked about innovation and the supermarket being an innovation in mm-hmm. innovating the relationship of labor to products to make these workers uh, actual shareholders in the goods that they're creating so that labor isn't always a cost to be cut um, because it's the first place that manufacturers go. And that's that's the if you want to get big picture, that's the global game. We want lower prices at the checkout. Mm-hmm. These first world buyers go to go overseas to uh, demand that on our behalf from manufacturers and the manufacturers see all the different audits that they have to do for food safety and quality standards. And the one place that they can uh, extract those cuts on our behalf is labor. And so labor is where the costs get cut out of. And that of course um, creates a dehumanizing system at the end of the day. Um, Last question is in finishing this book, um, were there parallels that you can draw from your first in retrospect? Oh God, what a good question. Um, there are some <laughs> that I'm like toying with and I don't even totally have. I think there's just a vacuum in modern society right now. So the, probably the biggest parallel is one that I allude to at the end of the book, which is, you know, I'd watch these yogis fall in love with the yoga and they would go off and they would bend themselves uh, into pretzels and become better people for it. I mean, honestly, Bikram Yoga, for all of its faults, had so many transformational stories in that world where addicts would use it for recovery. Um, people would lose tremendous amount of weight. Um, but then they would take these new lives these, and they would use it to do more yoga. You know, it was never like, oh, we're going to go off and, and give yoga to a clinic, uh, you know, h- help elderly people at a nursing home. It was always more yoga, more yoga. And, and in grocery, it's kind of parallel to that in that, uh, you know, Amazon and Whole Foods, you know, all of these chains are promising us that by making groceries more convenient for us, and cutting shipping down to one day and maybe one hour someday, our lives will be better and we can do more with our time. And then it's like, well, well, what are we going to be doing? Like what, what happens when we make convenience as a society, the end goal, it it feels very circular and there needs to be something more there. Um, And, you know, with, I think this doom scrolling we were talking about earlier for a lot of people, there is a vacuum of meaning that we can deify convenience and make it a goal, but what then? Um, what you know? What are we? What are we doing with all this time saved that makes us feel better? Um, so there, there is a connection there, but one that I have not fleshed out. So sorry <laughs> to leave it incomplete. Yeah. 
No, TBD. Great. Okay. So TBD, um, where the most important question, where can, um, uh, listeners go to find a copy of your book and follow your work? Anywhere books are sold, um, you know, it's, uh, should be in your local independent bookseller. It should be on Amazon. It definitely is. Um, (laughs) and like I said, it's on audio. If you can't bear to focus on the written world right now, like many of us, like myself, um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's there too. Okay, Ben, we're going to leave it there, but thank you again so much for taking the time to come on the show. Um, the book is incredible. Everybody needs to buy it right now. I loved it. Um, also want to give a big thanks to our sponsors. Our show engineer is Jeet Paul and music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the HRN website or wherever podcasts are found. Um, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe, leave me a comment, let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute and thanks for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.